we come back to the study of God's word and back to this little church in Philadelphia, the ancient city of Philadelphia in Western Turkey. It's all about security. We have insecurities, we all have insecurities. And those insecurities are always related to what we fear losing. And it's probably likely that our very personal and relational insecurities that we have they probably have connections and similar connections to any spiritual insecurities that you might have also. They're likely tied together and you heard some of that even in the testimony in baptism today. Do you fear losing God? Do you ever fear being good enough, loving him enough, serving him faithfully enough? Do you ever question whether or not you can have any kind of security when it comes to your eternal future with God? The letter that Jesus writes to this little church in Philadelphia should be of help to you. Philadelphia, in the ancient world, it was a city that had a very short and a very unstable history, especially in light of other churches in that region. By the time that this little letter was written to it, it had been rocked by several earthquakes that had decimated the city and took decades for it to recover from, and by the time that it had gained some semblance of normality it was still a small congregation it's a small city and an even smaller congregation within it but they didn't need size and they didn't need influence in order to be faithful from what we learn in this letter they were a very faithful congregation they're one or one of just two churches mentioned among the seven that Jesus gives no word of condemnation, but only a word of commendation in these seven letters. What we learn about this little church in Philadelphia is that Jesus is the complete security for his church. That's the theme of this letter. Jesus is the complete security for his church. And we began asking the question, and to answer it, what is it about Jesus that makes him the complete security for the church? What are the qualities that we find in Jesus that makes him the one person that we hold to and look to and find security? We started looking at these last Lord's Day, these qualities that make Jesus the complete security for the church that keep us stable in faith. Let's look at the first one just in review again. It was found in verse 7. Jesus is the source of our security. He's the source of our security. He is the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. As we found in all of the letters, if you feel insecure, if you feel out of sorts, if you're receiving persecution, if you're unstable, who do you look to? You look singularly at Christ. If you have sin of which could bring discipline and even the wrath of God, what do you do? You look to Christ. Christ puts himself on display at the beginning of every one of these letters as he does here. And he emphasizes a number of qualities that make him the only source of true security. First, Jesus is God. We see that in the phrase, he who is holy, literally the holy one. That is an Old Testament phrase used to describe God, especially in the book of Isaiah. He is the holy one. 
God himself is your source of security. Secondly, Jesus is authentic. That's what makes him the source of authority. He who is true, literally the true one. He's the holy one. He's the true one. Not just that he's truth, but he's genuine. He's authentic. He's the real deal. Where some would reject him as illegitimate, a false messiah, he reflects to this church, no, I am the true one. You can trust me. There's security in him. He's authentic. Third, Jesus is the Messiah. That's found in that phrase. He holds the key of David. That's really a significant phrase. It's the promise that God made to Israel's most significant king, David, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that from David's line would come the ultimate king. He would have many kings that came from that line, but they would all lead to the ultimate king, and that would be the Messiah. This phrase, the key of David, is taken from Isaiah chapter 22. It's a context where a promise was made to a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim is a gentleman mentioned back in the Kings, 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. He was one who was over the royal household. He was a servant of King Hezekiah, but he acted in the authority of the king. He was over the king's house. In fact, he had the keys to the royal house of David, to the treasury and everything else. No one got into the royal household without Eliakim making that possible. And interesting in Isaiah 22, Eliakim is referred to as my servant, God's servant, which is a title used in the book of Isaiah to refer to Messiah. It's almost as if, and this happens oftentimes when the prophets, the prophets are trying to take a real life example and illustration and use it as something that will picture something more full and final to come in the future. And that's what's happening here. Eliakim, my servant, who holds the key to the household, Jesus is now saying, I am that servant. I am that one who holds the keys to the household of David because I'm that promised Messiah that comes from that line. I not only operate with the power of the, of the king, I am that king. He's the Messiah. Everything that the Old Testament predicts about the coming Messiah is found in this person, Jesus. That's why he's our only security. Look to anybody else, you won't find it. That also makes him forth the gatekeeper. That's why he's our security. He's the gatekeeper. He opens and no one will shut. He shuts and no one opens. That is, who is the person who opens the gate of the kingdom and lets you come in? It's Christ. Now, we learned last week he administrates that through the church because the church is the representation of the body of Christ in this era until he returns. But the church, as people come into the church, we're recognizing what Christ alone recognizes, that they trust him for salvation. It's what you just heard in the testimony. And the church receives them in because we exercise the keys of the kingdom, as we saw in Matthew 18. If you have Jesus... There is no one who will give you greater security. He's God. He's authentic. He is the Messiah. He is the gatekeeper. There's no other way but by him. The second quality that should give us some stability in light of the security that we have in Christ, we began looking at last week in verse 8. Jesus is the provider of our security. He's the one who gives, and that word give is used repetitiously in these verses because he's the provider. He's the source for sure, and he's also the one that actually gives and dispenses security. That's what we need. 
There's four different provisions he makes for our security that we will find here. Verse 8 is the first. Jesus provides secure entrance. He says, I know your deeds. Those deeds consisted of the fact that they had a little power, meaning they were small and socially insignificant. Those deeds consisted of the fact that they have kept my word and have not denied my name. They've persevered through severe challenge to obeying and remaining loyal to identify with Jesus. And because you have remained faithful, behold, Jesus says, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. What more security do you want than that? Here's the open door. I'm letting you into the kingdom and no one can shut you out of it. Because I've seen who you are. I know who you are. Your deeds have revealed your heart. Your heart has shown you to be in the kingdom. You're in the kingdom. I've opened the door to you. Faithfulness is the sign of our guaranteed entrance into the kingdom. Jesus provides secure entrance. This morning we pick it up in verse 9. And just so you know, we're not going very far. All right, I'm just saying that up front. These are very rich verses. They're very significant verses, and I want to spend a little time in them. We're just going to cover verses 9 and 10 today, and Lord willing, we'll finish it out next time that we come to the book of Revelation to study it. We'll finish it out. But I want us to think through this. What further security we have in what Jesus provides for his people? The second... Jesus provides security from our enemies. He provides security from our enemies. And perhaps in a way that you don't quite expect here in this letter and in this verse. Verse 9, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Obviously, this is security from enemies. This church faced a similar challenge to that of the other faithful congregation that is mentioned in the seven letters. That is the church in Smyrna back in chapter 2 verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And listen to this phrase, the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Something similar is going on in this faithful church in Philadelphia that was going on in the faithful church in Smyrna. And it has to do with those who are ethnically Jews, but are not realizing where Judaism should have sent them. It's a Jewish problem. The very mention of the term synagogue makes this a Jewish problem. Synagogue is where the Jews gathered to listen to the law and be instructed in the law as opposed to the ecclesia or the church. It's a difference. But this synagogue is the headquarters of Satan. And what is it that made this this synagogue the headquarters of Satan? I mean, weren't these Jews who were worshiping in the synagogue, worshiping the same God as the Christians? Weren't they using similar books of scripture that the Christians would also use? Before Jesus, 
before he came, before his earthly life and ministry, before his death on the cross and his ascension, before all of that, Judaism was the old covenant means of coming to the one true God. If you wanted to come to God, you had to come through Israel. They were his representation of his people. You had to come through them. It was that nation that came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was governed by the Mosaic Covenant, all that you find in the books of the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. But if you read the Mosaic Law carefully, in places like Deuteronomy 4 and places like Deuteronomy 30 that we won't get into today, perhaps, but God said what would happen is that this nation, Israel, would one day go astray. They would walk away from him. They would leave him and they would break that Mosaic covenant. But God would always be faithful to the original covenant he made with them under Abraham. The new covenant would come later through the Messiah. They would break the old covenant and a new covenant would come through the Messiah and it would restore Israel to belief and restore them to all the promises that God had originally made to them. And what many Jews did not recognize, even though the prophets predicted it and told them very clearly, they never realized that the Messiah would have to suffer first. They merely wanted him to come and rule, but he had to come and suffer. And they they didn't understand the importance of Isaiah 53 that predicted the suffering of God's servant. And they rejected the Messiah when he appeared. So this means that after the coming of Messiah, when Jesus actually did come and he suffered and he brought atonement and he was the epitome of all the Old Testament sacrifices, if you tried to continue worshiping God according to the Old Covenant Judaism that was pointing you to the Messiah, if you tried to do that after Messiah came, you were literally locked into a false religion. A false approach to God because the Messiah had come. Christianity became the only means of acceptable worship to God. Remember, Jesus is the key that unlocks the ultimate kingdom through the promised king. If you promote a religion, Any approach to religion, even if you use the Bible to do so, or you use a portion of the Bible without a correct view of Jesus, that is to promote a satanic religion. Because it's not leading you to forgiveness in God. It's a false religion. 1 Timothy 4 would call it a demonic religion, an unsaving approach to God. What does the devil want you to believe? Whatever will keep you from Christ. Whatever keeps you from Christ keeps you locked in your sin and causes you to dishonor God. Christ is the only means to acceptable worship. Has to be. So those Jews in Philadelphia who say they are Jews but are not and they lie. They're ethnic Jews to be sure. And they're claiming to truly represent God through their Jewish worship, but they're not true Jews because a true Jew would recognize the end of Judaism, which is what? Messiah. They would recognize that. So what they're saying 
in their synagogue is a lie. It's leading people away from God. Does that sound harsh to you? Does that sound unkind to say? It's not, not if it liberates you from sin. Interestingly, a second century church leader by the name of Ignatius wrote a letter to the Christians in the city of Philadelphia. And he referred to this Jewish opposition to Christianity. Listen to what Ignatius said again in the, in the second century. If anyone should interpret Judaism to you, do not hear him. For it is better to hear Christianity from a man who is circumcised than Judaism from someone who is uncircumcised. But if neither of them speak about Jesus Christ, these ones represent to me tombstones and graves of the dead upon which are written only the names of people. Therefore flee from the evil designs and snares of the ruler of this age, lest being afflicted by this mindset you grow weak in love. Just a few decades after this letter is being written, Ignatius writes to this same church and says, there are people trying to worship God and call you to do the same with them that will lead you away from God. That's satanic. That's satanic. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah who alone possesses the means to enter God's kingdom. Any other religious approach to God is a lie. It's what Peter announced to the Jewish leaders. You remember that early in the book of Acts? Acts 4 verse 10. Let it be known to you, all of you, and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You don't come through Christ? You don't come. There's no life. Now, just a quick footnote on this. Some suggest that this statement, who say that they are Jews and are not, is saying that true Jews are Christians, which means that the church is the gathering of true Jews. The church, then, is the true Israel. But just to sum that up, that's a little, in my estimation, not seeing the whole of what the Scripture says. One commentator noted of that view, the claim of these people that they themselves were Jews is understood by some as an indication that the ancestral title Jew has now been appropriated for the Christian church and that this racial succession has passed to Christianity. Listen to this. Nowhere does the verse say this, however. It simply denies that because of its spiritual state, this particular group of Abraham's descendants were deserving of such recognition. According to John, a true Jew is one who has been forgiven through recognizing Jesus as his Messiah. A false Jew is one who rejects not only Jesus, but also those who believe in Jesus. They're still referring to ethnic Jews. If you're a true Jew, you'll recognize Christ as the Messiah. That makes you true in your ethnic Jewish relationship to God. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about this false synagogue. What is Jesus going to do with them? He says, I will make them come 
and bow down. Literally at the beginning of the verse when he says, behold, I will cause, it's the same word give. I will give them. And how will he give them? He will make them come and bow down at your feet. What are we to make of this? I want you to listen carefully because this is probably not quite what you think. Uh Uh-oh. To make someone come and bow down, that's one word to bow down. One word in the Greek New Testament, it is the word proskuneo. It means to prostrate oneself in front of another. It's used 20 more times in the book of Revelation. And every single time it is used outside of this one, it is translated and it means some form of worship. It means worship. It is not merely a bowing in respect. It is a term that means worship every time in the book of Revelation. This is the bowing down of worship, the prostrating oneself in worship. Not just honor, not respect, worship. You say, well, then what does this mean? Because Jesus says, I'm going to cause them then, if we insert that word, to worship at your feet. Well, he's not saying that these Jews are going to worship Christians. I don't think you would hear that from the lips of the one true God who demands worship. But they will bow down to worship Christ and do so in front of this church. The very church that they are persecuting for worshiping Jesus Christ will be the people before whom they will show their own worship of Jesus Christ. I want you to I want to show you something fascinating about this. This idea of the Christ rejecting Jews coming to bow as worshipers of Jesus before the feet of those who are in his church is the same picture that the Old Testament painted about God rejecting Gentiles and nations bowing at the feet of God honoring true Jews at the end of time. Turn to Isaiah chapter 60 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 60 is where you're going to find even an allusion to this phrase that we see used in Revelation 3. Isaiah 60, just look at the first, just to get some context, look at verse 1. This pictures the nations, Gentile nations, coming before Zion. And Zion is usually a word that points to the restored heavenly city of Jerusalem. It pictures the nations coming before Zion, Jerusalem, and Israel after Israel has not only been physically restored but spiritually and physically restored. Look at verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light is come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. He's speaking to Zion. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. He's talking about the glory of God being centralized on Zion. And what will happen, verse three, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. The nations are coming. 
to the glorified Zion. Look at verse 10. Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. What does that mean? The unbelieving nations will help build Zion. Their kings of these nations will come and minister to you. For in my wrath, I struck you. This is important for where we're going and where Jesus is going in this very text. He struck who? In my wrath, he struck who? Jerusalem, the Jews, Israel, Zion. In my favor, I have had compassion on you, Zion. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish and the nations will be utterly ruined. What's that talking about? Nations will come and bow in Jerusalem, the holy Jerusalem, once it has been restored after God has struck it, he will restore it and the nations will come and bow down in front of Israel. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper and the box tree and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. Now watch this verse. The sons of those who afflicted you will come, what? Bowing to you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. That verse, verse 14, is what Jesus is referring to back in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. What is being said here? This is really fascinating. Isaiah 60 points to a time when the pagan nations are in a state of turning to Yahweh and Israel is in a state of turning to Yahweh and Jerusalem is the epicenter of Yahweh's glory that is drawing all of them together in belief. And it was the pagan nations that used to persecute Israel for their belief in God and they will bow in front of Israel. So there's a fascinating reversal here, isn't there? Because in Revelation 3.9, he refers to this passage and says, those Jews who are not true Jews will come and bow in worship in front of the church that they were persecuting. Those who formerly persecuted the people who followed Yahweh will one day come to worship him and bow themselves in the worship of Yahweh in front of the feet of those who previously they persecuted Unbelieving nations will do this before a believing and restored Israel. And in Revelation, unbelieving Jews will do this before a believing and restored Gentile nation. He says, I will make them come and bow down. I'll make them come and worship. It's future. Future tense verbs are used here. And when will that happen? When will the unbelieving nations become worshipers and bow before the, the feet of restored Jews? When will unbelieving Jews be turned to God and bowed before the feet of Gentiles who believe? When will that happen? Well, again, we were reading it. Isaiah pictures a time, a future time, when the Lord's glory has actually come to the earth. And when is that? The second coming. 
With that in mind, turn over to Revelation 20 just for a moment so you can see it. Revelation 20, look at verse 4. This is after the Lord has returned in chapter 19. The devil has been bound in verse 4. It says, then I saw thrones and they who sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and they did what? They reigned. Here are the saints, the believing people, the believing nations coming and they're reigning over all the other nations of the earth. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. That's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There's a thousand-year period where the saints will reign alongside Christ over all the other nations of the earth that used to persecute them. And then look at chapter 21, verse 23. Chapter 21 begins describing the new Jerusalem, or we could call it, as Isaiah does, Zion. Verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it because of what? The glory of God has illumined it. This is the exact language from Isaiah chapter 60. This is when God's glory rests on Jerusalem. It's not now. It's not now. It is after the Lord has returned And after the thousand years where the saints are ruling over the nations, the glory of God descends on Zion and watch what happens. Its lamp is the lamb. Verse 24 is critical. It goes back to Isaiah 60. The nations will do what? Walk by its light. What nations? All the nations. You mean there's going to be nations that come into the new Jerusalem? That's what this text says. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It's exactly what Isaiah 60 was predicting. Nations. What's a nation? A group of people who are identified by a political organization and territorial possession. It's what a nation is. And there will be nations that come into the new Jerusalem. There's some organization along with the Gentile nations. There will also be the nation of Israel. Israel is just one among the nations. It's what was predicted and we already saw in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who, were, who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. This is the very idea that Paul pointed to in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 11 when he predicted that the unbelieving nation of Israel would come and they would believe. Verse 25 in Romans 11. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Listen to this. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. Why? They rejected the Mosaic Covenant. They rejected God. There's a partial hardening that has come upon Israel as a people. Until when? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is what Jesus is referring to again. 
Israel will bow in worship of Christ before the Gentile nations when the Lord returns. And it says, so all Israel will be saved. There's no legitimate way to understand Israel in Romans 11 as anything other than the nation of Israel because that's how it's referred to over and over again. One day after the fullness of the times of the Gentiles comes in, they will be saved. They will be one of the nations that returns. In fact, according to verse 11 of Romans 11, the Gentiles are causing the Jews through salvation right now to become jealous because we hold the crown jewels of being the people of God and saying this is what it means because we worship the Messiah and it is to move them to jealousy so that they will return back to the Lord which is predicted. So what is Jesus saying back in Revelation 2 and verse 9? I'm going to make these unbelieving Jews who are lying and they're a synagogue of Satan. I'm going to make them come and worship before Christ before your very feet. The people you persecuted, the people who persecuted the church are actually going to become worshipers of Christ at the feet of those they used to persecute which is the exact same thing that was said of Israel. Those Gentile nations that persecuted them when they were faithful they will come and worship the Lord before the feet of Israel. Both are true. What does that say? This is not the destruction of your enemies. This is the salvation of your enemies. I wonder if you ever pray that way. I just want my enemies to be crushed. I don't like what they're doing to me. But don't you remember... Even the synagogue of Satan who's lying, one day he will make them worshipers. Weren't we taught to pray that way? To pray blessing on those who persecute us? What does blessing mean? Turn them into believers, which is a profound thought. It's not just security that he's going to keep you away from your enemies. One day God is going to work in such a profound way that all the nations of the earth will worship him, including those who used to persecute you as God's people. What kind of security is that? That's profound. Profound security that we find in Christ. Yes, he'll deliver you from your enemies in such a way that he makes them worshipers. Won't that be joyful? Don't we rejoice every now, every time now that we see someone who was an unbeliever and an enemy of God turn and they embrace Christ and their life is transformed? And so it one day will be for all the nations of the earth. That's how secure we are because of what Christ provides in deliverance from our enemies. Now, there's a third kind of provision that we want to think about. In verse 10, he also provides security for our exemption. Uh Uh-oh. What does this mean? Well, let me spend some time with you on this. Verse 10, look at it carefully. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
He's gonna exempt you from the coming time of testing on the whole world. Let me see if I can break this down into different parts to help us see what Jesus is referring to. What are we to make of this exemption? First, our exemption is conditional. It's conditional. Who is it reserved for? Do you see it in verse 10? Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. You've kept. Tereo is the word. I mention it because it's going to come up a bit in just a moment. It's the same word used in verse 8. You have kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've obeyed the word. You've loved the word. You've guarded and persevered in the word so much that you have obeyed it. It's just a typical way to speak of obedience. But they've kept, notice here, the word of my perseverance. This is interesting. We could learn from that. It could be a phrase that simply means you have kept the word that has given you perseverance. It has caused you to persevere. Except that he puts that little pronoun in there, my, it's mine. My perseverance. What does that refer to? Well, likely this is a description of Jesus' own perseverance. What is the word of Jesus' own perseverance? Where do we see Jesus persevering? In the gospel accounts, don't we? The gospel accounts describe the historical facts of how Jesus persevered through trial. But notice the rest of the New Testament books, what do they describe for us? They describe not just how he persevered, but why Jesus persevered. In fact, you could look at all of the New Testament letters and you could understand them to be showing you why is it that Jesus had to persevere through the trial for your atonement, for your righteousness. So this Philadelphian church suffered affliction because they obeyed the example of their Lord. The instruction from their Lord in regard to Jesus' own perseverance and what it accomplished caused them to persevere. It's exactly what Peter told us to do in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The whole gospel account and everything else in the New Testament talks about why Jesus suffered and persevered and why we follow his example. And the Philadelphian church had done that. They'd done that. You say, but you said this was conditional. It is. It's only for those who keep the word of my perseverance. You say, does that mean I could lose my salvation if I once had it? And, I, and if, I, if I just give up, then I could lose it? Well, that question assumes that the ability that anyone has to keep the word is in themselves. And it's not. We're faithful to keep his word because he is faithful to keep us. Jesus is not saying, dig deep, work harder, make sure that you obey on your own because if you do, then I'll help you out. Aren't you glad Jesus does not say that to us? No, but this is a warning. If you are the kind of person 
who never keeps the word that describes Jesus and his perseverance and all of the implications of that for you, then you're not going to be the kind of person who's kept from the coming trial. Because it doesn't describe you. This is not a theology of all that's involved of why anybody keeps the word, but it is a warning and you should hear it as that. If you're not a follower of Christ or if you are someone who has openly identified yourself with Jesus Christ, but your life is not marked by keeping the word, following Jesus' example of perseverance and loyalty to God, you do not have this security But if you do keep the word, and that is a characteristic of your life, he's not talking about perfection, but the direction of your life says, I'm a keeper of God's word, I persevere. Then I want you to see the kind of security you have. But notice, it is conditional. You must be a keeper of the word. Secondly, this exemption is corporate. It's corporate. You say, what do you mean by that? It's promised to the church not just to an individual, but to the church, the church in Philadelphia. And by implication, verse 3, 13, this is what the Spirit is saying to whom? All the churches. This is not just a promise to you as an individual, though certainly you are included in that, but to the congregation, to the church, it's corporate. If you are a church defined by the Scriptures, not the culture, then you're a church that's going to be exempted from the hour of affliction that is coming. It's corporate. Also, our exemption is separation. It's separation. You've kept the word of my perseverance, and the you is referring to the church. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. I will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, we'll define what the hour of testing is in just a moment, but let's make sure of what Jesus is saying here. It's a play on words, you can see it. You've kept my word, I'm gonna keep you from. And it's emphatic. He actually says, I, I myself will do this. I will do it. There's a significant debate that ensues right here. There's two words in Greek here. Tereso ek, or tereo ek. I will keep you out. Now just follow me, all right? I know, I know what time it is, I'm watching. Just follow. You've got nothing better to do. Football's over, there's nothing going on in the world. See, I heard that. <clears throat> what does this mean? Keep out, keep from. Now, in the New Testament, the word keep is used with other prepositions, not just ek, out. It could be used as keep in, Keep in is used a few places, and that would mean it describes a sphere in which someone is maintained or kept or protected within something. Acts 12.5, to keep someone in prison. Or 1 Peter 1.4, something is kept within heaven. That's tereo in. There is the phrase keep from, tereo apa, from, apa is the preposition from, it's used in James 1.27, to keep you from being stained from the influence of the world, to keep you from someone's influence. That would be tereo apa. But this is not tereo in, to keep you inside of. This is not 
to keep you from someone's influence. This is to separate you from, tereo ek. In fact, that phrase, tereo ek, is used only one other time in the New Testament. John 17, 15. Which is a beautiful passage of security. Because in John 17, 15, he's praying for their security. And you remember, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I don't ask you to bring them out, is the literal phrase. Bring them out, but to keep them out of the evil one. Keep them out of the evil one. Now, someone would say, well, what Jesus is praying for is, see, he doesn't want to remove you from the world. He just wants to keep you from the influence of the evil one. But if that's what he meant, he would have used a different preposition. He would have said to keep you either through, that would be a different preposition than what he uses here, or to keep you within, that's a different preposition, keep in, but he says keep out. So what is Jesus praying? He's not praying, I'm going to leave you in the world, I'm not going to take you out of the world, but I'm going to keep you through the evil one or the influence of the evil one. No, Jesus doesn't want you to be connected to the evil one at all. So while in this time before he comes, he's going to keep us in the world, he's going to keep us separate from the evil one. That's what he's saying here. It is a word of separation. It's a word of separation. Keep them separate from the evil one. So the same is true in Revelation 3.10. If Jesus was making a promise, because you're faithful to the word, I'm going to be faithful to keep you faithful through the hour of trial, then he would have stated that more clearly. He would have used a different preposition to say, I'm going to keep you through it or in it or from the influence of it. But that's not what he says. I'm going to keep you separate from the hour of trial. What kind of promise would it be anyway if he says, you know what, you've been under trial and suffering. So here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to bless you with this. I'm going to give you more trial and suffering and just do the same thing. No, because you've been faithful, I'm going to keep you completely separate from what's coming. Completely separate. So what is this hour of testing? That the church as a corporate entity will be kept from. That hour of testing that we will kept be kept from is specific I want you to see that it's specific it's the hour literally in the Greek it's the hour of the testing it's not just random trials or general suffering it is the hour of the testing hour is used here to denote a a definite amount of time the season of trial doesn't have to be 60 minutes. It can refer to a season. Revelation 14, 7, the hour of his judgment has come. It could refer, refer to clock time if there were other words that describe that in the context. But this is similar to John 12, 27. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying? John 12, 27, now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour what does he mean by that save me as I go through the hour no he wasn't wanting God just to preserve him as he went through it he didn't want to go through it at all 
That's what he's praying. Keep me separate from the hour that is coming, the season of the cross. Is there another way? But if not, your will be done, right? It's the same idea in Revelation 3.10. I will keep you separate from this hour of testing, a specific hour of testing. Now, what is this? Well, this is something that's been predicted from the very beginning. Let me just, you just jot these verses down and listen to them. You can go back and and look at them later. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 26. I'm just gonna give you a few here. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you, talking to Israel as a nation. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. And that happened in history, didn't it? They disobeyed and they were driven out of the land. And there you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone and neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from you... But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in, listen to this, when you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, a phrase that refers to the end of time, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord. Who's he talking to? Israel, there's coming a time when you will go through a distress a distress that is unlike any other time. And at the end of that distress, you will come back to me. It's mentioned again in Isaiah 13. I won't read that, verses six through 13. It's mentioned in Isaiah 17, four to 11. It's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 14, verses one to four. It's mentioned in Jeremiah 30, which may be one of the greatest and most significant texts that describe this period of distress for Israel. Jeremiah 30, that's what we call the book of consolation from Jeremiah 30 to 32. And in in the very middle of it is the new covenant promise that I'll restore your heart. And at the beginning of the book of Consolation, at the end is a promise that God will restore Israel. But in the middle, he predicts that they will go through a season of trial called Jacob's trouble. It's specific and it's related to Jacob so that you don't miss it. It's related to Israel as a people that God will bring about a severe time of trial and discipline and distress upon them. Jesus describes that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 31, and I think we will see it in the book of Revelation in specifics from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. We'll describe the season of the hour of trial. So it's specific. It's not just general trials. A specific coming judgment. Also, our exemption is imminent. Imminent, meaning what? It's about to come. It's about to come. That's what he says. I'm about to bring it. I'm going to bring it. I'm about to bring it upon the whole world. That season of trial could begin at any moment. Do you live as if the season of trial could come? It's imminent. And notice also, it's global. You see that? It's global. It'll come upon the whole world. It's not a localized trial. It's on the entire inhabited planet. It's not Jerusalem in 70 A.D., 
and the destruction of the temple as some would suggest. That would make no sense to a church on the western side of Turkey that they're going to be exempted from the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem many, many miles away from them. No, it's not the Roman Empire that is described here. It's the entire world. Revelation 12, 9, the devil and Satan will deceive the whole world. Same term is used. Revelation 16, 14, spirits of demons go out to the kings of the whole world. It's the whole planet. So there's coming a specific time of trial on the entirety of the globe. And what will it be? It'll be a time of judgment. How do we know that? Who has it come to? It's an hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Just to make this clear, those who dwell on the earth is a specific technical phrase to refer to the unbelievers on the earth who reject God during this time of trial. It's mentioned in chapter 6, verse 10, 8, 13, 11, 10, 13, 8, 13, 12, 13, 14, 17, 2, and 17, 8. All of those refer to those who dwell on the earth. They're unbelievers. Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound, Revelation 8, 13. These are unbelievers. So get this, the hour that's coming is not about the persecution of the church. It's about the judgment of God on the world. It's not about the persecution of believers. It's about the coming judgment of God on those who do not believe, those who dwell on the earth. You say, but there'll be believers there and they're gonna suffer during this time. Yes, but that's not what the hour of testing is all about. Certainly there will be some who come out of that time but they come out of it to be separate from it, not to go through it. Notice, lastly, our exemption is future. It's future. This is a specific time of trial that comes before, but ushers in the return of Jesus. We're gonna see it will begin in Revelation 4.1 because it says what happens in Revelation 4.1 describes all those things that happen after these things that happen after the things described to the church. So you say, are you saying that this means that the church is going to be removed before the time of trial comes? I'm saying that Jesus will keep the church separate away from the time of trial that will come upon the whole earth. It doesn't demand the rapture but the church will not be connected to, they will not be in, they will not go through because that's not what's described here. He will keep us separate from that time of trial. Now, by the way, he did accomplish that for the Philadelphian church. Do you know that? They did not and they will not go through that time of trial. They don't even exist today, right? So he did keep that promise to them But this is not only to them as an ancient church, but to all the churches because the Spirit is talking to the churches. He will keep them from this hour of trial. I do think that this can refer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 11 and the catching away of believers to be with the Lord in the air. Because the next thing that is described after he catches those believers away is 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord, which is the outpouring of God's judgment on the earth. So just in sequential pattern, you see that to be the case in other places. So 
all of that to say there is ample biblical evidence to suggest that the church will be exempted from the coming hour of trial. This is not Christians who are afraid to suffer. No, he says you will suffer. You're going to suffer. Be faithful in your suffering and then I will keep you from the ultimate suffering that is to come on the entire world. He told Smyrna, don't fear what you're about to suffer. You're going to go through a definite period of trial, but it's not this coming future trial. It's a very different description. So I spend time on that because I want you to see in the scripture, there is a biblical reason to believe that Jesus will keep the church out of the coming time of affliction that will come on the whole earth. That's not make-believe that's not someone trying to get out of suffering. That's what Jesus promises. Think of this. You may suffer now, but if you are faithful, you will never have to ever think about going through ultimate suffering. He will keep you from it, separate from it. In fact, our trials now prepare us for enjoying the eternity with Jesus. The coming trial reveals the world that will be judged by Jesus. He's your security. If you're not a Christian, you have no hope of such future security. None. What should you do about that? Let me just suggest, believe. Follow Christ. Turn from your sin. And a holy God who is the promised Messiah, who opens the door to the kingdom, will open the door to you and bring you in and keep you safe, so much so that your very enemies will turn into worshipers and he will keep you from his judgment. That's what he promises. That's why we gotta pick it up from here for next week. I see the time. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that we would have hope and we would have secure hope in our Savior, not in ourselves, not in our well-doing or our ability, but in Christ alone. Father, we pray for those who live a life filled with insecurity, Remind them of who the Savior is and what he is doing to provide complete security. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.